You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. All right, so I had you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and I did so because today we start a new series. We are starting a series on the life of David. In fact, you see the, the artwork up there, and on the bottom it says shepherd and warrior and poet and king, and, and David is all these things, and we're going to look at all of these things. We're going to see David's life. This morning we are going to begin seeing the rise of David. And in the weeks to come, we will see the crash and burn of David. There is a man who seems to reach no greater height in the Old Testament in the midst of God's favor as the only one ever spoken of as a man after God's own heart. And we will see David fall maybe in a way that nobody else falls in the Old Testament. and still remains a man after God's own heart. And so I look forward with great anticipation this study of David's life over the next weeks and months together. And so to begin, I want to read the first 13 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 16. It is where we are introduced to David. Saul currently is the king. Samuel is the prophet. But in chapter 15 uh, is really the end of Samuel's uh, reign. I mean, God turns away from, I mean, end of Saul's reign. He turns away from Saul over a little uh, misunderstanding, you might say. And um, Samuel and Saul are on the outs. Saul and God are on the outs. And God is going to provide a new king for his people. And he begins by uh, sending Samuel to uh, Bethlehem, to Jesse, and to his sons. Because one of those sons is going to be anointed as king. He will be installed as king several years later. But he will be anointed as king uh, this morning, actually, this morning, he'll be anointed as king. So, making sure you're with me. All right, First Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Here we go. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I've rejected him from being the king of Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. And I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, well, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his outward appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
Then Jesse said, or Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, Well, there remains the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, but we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. So it's the beginning of the introduction to David. He is probably about 15 years old. This is probably the year, somewhere roughly around 1025 B.C. To tell you a little bit of background, the books, 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings, in the Hebrew is really all one work. In the Hebrew, it was all one work on two scrolls. One scroll was the Samuel scroll. The other scroll was the King's scroll. And this encapsulated or encompassed about 500 years of Israel's history. It is the recount of the monarchy of Israel. When the Bible was translated from the Hebrew to the Greek, it went from two scrolls to four scrolls because it takes at least twice as many Greek words to express the Hebrew language. And so we have four scrolls there. As it was translated later in English, we kept that for convenience sake. And so First and Second Samuel, you need to hear, is really all one work, all one scroll, and really belongs with the kings. The authorship, um, while it bears the name of Samuel, and Samuel very likely did write some of it. Um, he didn't write all of it. He dies at the end of First Samuel, and um, so the events of Second Samuel will take place after his death. What we do know about the author is this. Unidentified or not, and I think here we probably have Samuel's words, but later it will be an unidentified, and let's call him this, a historical theologian. Because what he's writing is not just history. I mean, he's certainly writing history. We certainly will see the history of David as it unfolds. But he's not only writing history. Because there are times we'll read it and we'll think, you know, this is not a very good historian because there's a whole bunch of questions that don't get answered here. But his aim is not to give us merely history. His aim is to give us theology. He's not simply telling us about David. He's telling us far more than just David's story. He's telling us the story of who David's God is. In fact, the way Samuel opens up, we, we realize Samuel's really the last judge of all the judges. The judges, if you'll remember, was, was described or uh, characterized this way, that in those days there was no king in Israel... Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You get to the end of Judges just before you open up Samuel and you have 12 tribes that are not united. 
You have 12 tribes that don't know how to get along with each other, and they know that they are vulnerable to the world around them. And they are they want to be united, and they think the answer is that we need to be united under a king, just like all the other nations have. And yet they forgot to ask God about it. They sought to do what was right in their own eyes, even in that venture. David's life's about 70 years. We pick up, like I said, in David's life, somewhere probably around where he is 15 years old, and we will watch the rest of his life Unfold. But the first thing I want you to see, let's look again at 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, is that God is the true king who provides for his kingdom. In 16.1, look at what it says. It, it uh, announces this, the Lord said to Samuel, how long we grieve over Saul. He's saying that because, like I said, God has um, decided Saul is no longer going to be his man. So since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, then he says, fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have, and notice what it says, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. When Israel chose a king, they looked at who, um, who, who might lead them best politically, who, who might be the most military, you know, uh, Force the presence that would that would strike fear and respect from the other nations. The, the one who would have been, you know, from a cultural standpoint, from a society standpoint, significant. So they choose Saul. I mean, he's tall. He's good looking. He has great teeth. He, I mean, if he was on The Bachelor, you know, next series, they'd have high ratings. You know, everybody would watch. I just hate that show. I, my college-age daughter's been home for the holidays, and if never mind. All right, so let's move on. From a human standpoint, you look at Saul, and he seems like you know what he seems like. The answer to all the problems. He seems like the object of all the desires. You know, I mean, what we're missing, the thing we're really missing. Saul has it. We can see it. And so that's why they choose Saul. The problem was he wasn't God's choice. If you've got your Bibles, I don't have this on the screen, but if you've got your Bible, I'm going to go back just a couple of chapters, 1 Samuel chapter 8. You turn with me or not, I'll, I'll read a little bit of it. But I just want you to hear, this is sort of Israel's crossroad. I mean, they know they need something. They, they know there are 12 disconnected tribes. They, they need to be unified. They, they need to come under the rule of God in some way, their solution is we, we want a king just like everybody else. And so they ask for a king. Samuel goes to God and says, oh, sorry, rats, we're asking for a king. And God says to Samuel, you know what? Then grant him a king. But tell them this before you do. And so in Second Samuel or 1 Samuel 8, verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, and these are the words of the Lord, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. So take note. This is what you're asking for. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and 
some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks. And you, you shall be his slaves. And in that day when you cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day goes on said the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said no but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the other nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles but so the Lord ended up telling Samuel obey their voice make them a make them a king give them one and it only takes seven chapters for that to unravel. It actually doesn't even take that long, but it's seven chapters later we're going to be introduced to God's choice. You know, I want you to hear as you hear those words in chapter 16, verse 1, that God provided for himself, uh, provided for myself a, a, a king. It, it's God's provision. It, it's really grace. I mean, so God could have come along. He would have had every right to come along and say, Hey, look, I told you so. I told you so. By the way, how many times when you hear God sort of in the the ears of your heart, you ever hear Him say that to you? If you do, by the way, it's probably not God. He doesn't come and say, well, you know, look, you got yourself into this mess. Good luck getting out of the mess. He doesn't do that at all. In fact, what we see over and over again in God's Word is the amazing patience, long-suffering that God has with His people. And listen, it's not because of His people. It's in spite of them. Do you know why God is patient with them? He's patient with them because of who He is. God made a covenant with them. I'm going to love you. I'm going to be your God. I, I will forever be your God and you're going to be my people. God is faithful to His promise. He's determined in His will for His people. Listen, God is for them even when they are against Him. God is for you even when you are against Him. When you rebel against Him. When you are determined to destroy yourself. For your good, by His grace. Not because of you. In spite of you. See, God provides. Actually, the text said He provided. Past tense. That nine times that word provide shows up in this chapter. Seven times in just the little section we read. It, it's provide two times. Beginning and at the end of the chapter. But it also shows up when you hear the word see or 
look at or appearance, all that's the same word. I mean, what God sees, what He lays His eyes upon, what He determines, that's His provision. It's the same word, incidentally. We find it. It's the first time it shows up in Scripture. Genesis chapter 22. If you're familiar, that's the place where Abraham is instructed by God to take Isaac up to the top of Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. Listen to what it says when the word provide shows up for us in Genesis 22.8. Abraham said, as he's telling Isaac, God will provide... Isaac has said, look, where's the... You've got me, you, the wood, the fire, I mean, where's the sacrifice? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Later, after God does, Isaac is spared because it's not Isaac's son that's going to die. I mean, it's not Abraham's son that's going to die. At the end, it says, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. You know what that mountain ends up being? It's Mount Moriah. We know it later as the Temple Mount. And the son who would be sacrificed, it's not Isaac, it would be God's son, also known as the son of David. When, when the writer says here God's words of God has provided... It's not just relevant to the 10th century B.C. It's relevant today in the 21st century A.D. God has provided. Not just for the Israelites then. It's for us today. Because it's the son of David who would end up being the son that died in our place. Well, it's not just God's provision. I mean, there's real and tangible and significant grace in God's provision. But I want you to see another grace here. It is in the way that God responds to Samuel's fear. Did did you hear it in the text? In fact, the mood, the the writer wants us to feel the mood of fear. In in verse 2, Samuel said, well, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. I mean, this is treason. Samuel and Saul, they're already on the outs. Samuel says, hey, look, if I go this, to do this thing, you're telling me, so if I go to Jesse's house, man, I, this is in direct opposition to Saul. He's already got spies on me. I mean, it's, it's a danger to me. I'm afraid for my life. I'm also afraid probably for Jesse's life too. They're in danger if I do this. You're fine. Listen, God's not only providing kings in this chapter. He he also provides heifers as well. You take a heifer with you. Say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. It's a true and real alibi that God provides him. See, I want you to see the point that, that this tells us something about God. These little verses and you know, Samuel will show up and you find that the people in Bethlehem, the elders, they're they're in fear. They're, they're afraid of Samuel. Samuel's afraid of Saul. The elders are afraid of Samuel. But these verses, we can read by them and think, well, it's just a little throwaway conversation between Samuel and God. It doesn't really mean anything. Let's, let's get to David here. 
But I want you to see, I mean, God takes notice of, and He is going to address Samuel's fears. I mean, He's not mocking him. He's not ridiculing him. He he didn't say to him, Samuel, I mean, you're never going to make the varsity team with an attitude like that. I mean, come on. Big team, little me. You know, I mean, the whole thing. doesn't say that. You know what? That's real to you. I'll address it. He doesn't heckle him. Sam, Samuel's trembling, and God comes to him. Listen, Samuel's God in First Samuel sixteen is our God too. I mean, you, you find fear. Listen, God comes right in. He's not mocking you. Ridiculing you, belittling you, saying, Well, there's no reason to be afraid here, even if there isn't. He he stoops down, he comes to where we are. He speaks. Listen, maybe you're here this morning and you there's real fear in your life. You fear, you know, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're fear you say, I don't even know if I'm saved. I'm not even sure if I have salvation or not. And there's this fear. Listen. God does not mock you about that. He comes to you where you are. Maybe this morning you're, you, you fear death or sickness, or maybe your fear say, well, how's it going? And you were honest, and you said, you know what? It's not going well. I'm alone. I'm tired. I'm afraid nobody notices me, that God doesn't know me. Maybe your fear this morning is that you feel the the drift in your marriage or in your family. I'm afraid for what the days and weeks and year may hold. God doesn't mock that. He stoops down into your life where you are. He does not despise you in your fear. He meets you right there. More to say about that in a minute. I want you to notice David's family. By the time you get to verse 6, the parade has started. The sons are sons are on the catwalk there in front of Samuel. And Eliab is first, and he comes out, and I mean, I mean, everything about Eliab says king. I mean, he's impressive. I mean, the, the three older sons, in fact, who that's were introduced to by name in this, all of them end up being leaders in Saul's army. We find that out next chapter. And Eliab seems to be the right-hand man. I mean, he he, he was, he was, you know, maybe he was tall. He, he, the way he carried himself, maybe he entered the room and just commanded respect. I mean, Samuel's thinking, man, if there was ever a king, I came here to anoint. That must be Eliab. I mean, his name even means God is king. And yet, God is asserting a principle that is asserted throughout the pages of the Bible. And that's this. 
God's not impressed by what's on the outside. Never has been. He looks right through that into our hearts. In fact, he, he has to tell Samuel just as much. Outwardly, Eliab would have been impressive. Inwardly, God rejects him. And, and if God had not saved Samuel from himself, he would have chosen another Saul, another disaster. God's keeping Samuel from falling for the deceptiveness of the obvious. If we can say it that way. I mean, this looks so obvious to me. Really. There's an Associated Press a couple of years ago. Maybe you heard about it. Uh, this woman, her name was Linda Burnett. She goes to the neighborhood grocery store. She goes in. She buys her groceries. She hot. You know, middle of the summer hot. She comes out. She's sitting in her car. She'd actually been sitting there for an hour, and a man comes up. Her car's locked, and she has her hands on the back of her head. You heard this? She's well, what's going? What? She's what? I've been shot, and I'm holding my brains in. Well, that's bad. So calls the paramedics. They come. They break into the car. They get her out of the car. And what they discovered is that there was a huge wad of bread dough on the back of her head. What had happened is she set the groceries down, sat in there, and a uh, Pillsbury biscuit canister exploded. Sounded like a gunshot. The dough smacked her in the head, and she picks up to hold her brain in. That's funny to me, you know? But I mean, what do you say? What do you conclude? You hear a gunshot? You reach back, there's a lot of brains or something? It was bread, not brains. She needed shampoo, not surgery is what she needed, right? I mean, way we are about things. Every inch of Eliab looked like a king. But he wasn't. Samuel Samuel fell for it. God is going to save Samuel from himself before he gets too trigger happy with that horn of oil. Now I can make a list of things. You probably could too. Of the obstacles that God has put in your way, all the inconveniences, all the disappointments when God in His grace was really saving you from yourself. God's gracious that way. Well, as you end up this account, in verse 11, Samuel says to Jesse, are, are, are all the sons here? God's not usually wrong about this deal. Seven of them have been marched before me. None of them are it. Are you sure you don't have another son? He said, well, I, actually, I do have another son, but it couldn't be that guy. I mean, he's just a little kid. He's out tending the sheep. But we don't invite him to anything. So they call him, and he's brought. And immediately he's announced as the one that God had provided. Samuel will anoint him. And once more we find in Scripture that God chooses what is most un 
likely to accomplish his will, to do his purpose. And it's not in any way measures up or aligns with human expectations or standards. You know, we say this, and it needs to be said because, you know, we can say it, and we would all nod our head, oh yeah, we know that about God, but none of us really believe it, right? That is not the significant it's not the most wealthy. It's not the most educated. It's not the most well-spoken. It's, it, it's not the best-looking. That's not who God goes after in the Scriptures. It's not those that are impressive. It is those who in their weakness, God comes and does what only God can do so that only God looks glorious in the midst of it. And you might be sitting here thinking, well, yeah, well, God can never use me. No, no, See. Your resume's already complete then. Well, I have nothing to offer. Great. You're in just the right spot. And it's so refreshing to be reminded of it. Did you notice in verse 13 is the first time we're introduced to David's name? Now, we, we open this up. We, we know Samuel, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. It's going to be about David. We, we know that. It's actually David's the longest biography in ancient literature. In, in anything ever written about anybody, the account in First and Second Samuel of David and his life is the longest biography of any person in ancient literature. And it takes 16 chapters to get to him. And when we finally get to the moment, the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, waits all the way to the end to even give us David's name. You know what it reminds us? It's not about David. It's about David's God. In fact, so much so, it reminds me that, that it's so interesting where the story of David actually begins. As you open up, if you're going to open up, write about David... You might begin with a little vignette of his early life and then go back and say, well, then this is when he was born. These are his baby pictures and all, all that. It's not where it begins. It also reminds us that if we're reading this and we're looking for, okay, well, man, what does David do good? And how can I be like David? You know, go and do like David. You know, this moralistic approach to reading God's Word that says, well, these are the characters. I just need to figure out how to be David. Let me tell you something. You're not David. The story is about who God is. And you know that because of where the story begins. You know what the story actually begins in 1 Samuel? It doesn't begin with David. It doesn't begin with his parents. It begins with the most, I argue, the most insignificant person in Israel in the day. It begins with an obscure, forgotten, lonely, broken woman named Hannah who cries out to God. God hears her. She has a son named Samuel. And then she turns and hands Samuel to the Lord. And in Hannah, in Samuel chapter 2, Hannah chapter 2, 1 Samuel chapter 2, 
She will sing this song, say this prayer, write this down. And you know what it is? We'll look at it in a couple weeks. It's a vision of the kingdom. It's a vision of the king. In a time where there is no king. God comes and speaks to her and through her and gives her this beautiful vision of what is to come. This is about God. And ultimately, God's Son, not David, but the Son of David, who is the eternal Son of God, Jesus. It points us to Him. You know, the uh, things in this world, I want to pick up with verse 7 for a second. Things in this world that catch our eye or capture our affections, I think we can take away this morning that they often are the things that are the greatest distractions to the activity and presence of God's work, God's love, and God's grace in our life. The truth is, no, we're not like David. We're actually a little, if we're going to pick somebody, we're more like Israel. We're more like Samuel. I mean, we're deceived by the eyes in our head to the peril of the eyes of our heart. You know, the the song, the, the chorus we sing sometimes, you open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. It's a good thing to sing. It's a good thing to pray because the eyes in our head will so often blind us to what is good and perfect and the will of God. And by eyes in our head, I mean not just the things that we see. I mean not just the beauty or the better circumstances or the significance that we're naturally drawn to when we lay our eyes on it. I mean also the natural desires and affections that we have. It's a story from the very beginning. Listen to Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. But in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And when there is this disconnect between our, our natural affections, the, the things that we're drawn to and act upon because of the eyes in our head, the things we see, a life lived by sight, there is a disconnect between that and a life lived by faith, a life lived by what we cannot see naturally but must be believed. And when those two things, there's this disconnect, a chasm between, and there's a chasm for all of us, by the way. Our solution, our tendency, is to try to mend what is broken by cleaning up what is on the outside. So we adjust our behavior. We want to be more presentable. We want to look good to the others around us. We think we have fixed the problem if everybody around us thinks we're okay. So we modify our behavior, 
press into our morality so that we are presentable. The problem is God looks right past that into our hearts. There's a guy, Randy Racebrook, he wrote an article, Heart of Discipleship. This is from Discipleship Journal several years ago. But it's still relevant. He says this, a relationship with God consists much more than, than much more consists of much more than behavior. It does involve certain prescribed actions to be sure there is behavior, but more important, it involves the motives, values, and attitudes behind those actions. The Lord knows that what makes a person is not just his actions, but what's happening in his heart. That's why God says. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Christian life is a matter of the heart. The word heart's found more than 630 times in Scripture. The Bible was given to us as a standard for evaluating our hearts. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, and it penetrates to dividing soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and actions of the heart. What God desires from us is not outward conformity, but inward surrender from the heart. Oswald Chambers speaks of the heart this way. The heart's not merely the seat of affections. It's the center of everything. The heart's the central altar, and the body is the outer court. What we offer on the altar of the heart will tell ultimately through the extremities of the body heart that's is all that gives a person the unique identity he has, he or she has, both rationally and emotionally. So you see, the the heart and what's going on in your heart and the affections of your heart and the character of your heart is infinitely more important than your physical appearance. What you see with the eyes of your head. The man looks on the outward appearance, not God. Because that's not reality. It's not who you really are. Listen to what Tim Keller has to say about this. It's, it's, it's pointed, what he's going to say, okay? Or what I'm going to read that he said. And it's meant to be. And that first hour I felt as I read this how uncomfortable the room got. And so you know, I know, and you know, so we all know it's uncomfortable. So there, all right? Here we go. It says, we live in a society and in a culture in which we're bombarded with images of physical beauty to the degree that no matter who you are, you cannot help but make some comparison with yourself. Therefore, we think more about physical appearance than any group of people in the history of the world, in any other century, in any other culture, far more than anyone else ever has. Now, that's corrosive. I don't want to have to go into, because you've read it and there's a lot of research, it's incredibly corrosive to women who find that their self-appreciation is inordinately tied to how they look or how thin they are. And of course, men at this point are being inundated with a kind of unprecedented wave of involvement in and availability of pornography he says this. Do you, do you know what pornography is? Pornography deeply habituates your soul 
to look at things in completely opposite ways than God does. It habituates you to concentrate completely on the shape and quality of the skin, not the content of the character. Here is what pornography does. When you walk down the street, you find yourself noticing, you find your head turning to look at what God says is spiritually inconsequential and unreal, then you're pulverized. And we live in a society which sees exactly the opposite of God. Now, listen, I bring this up because it may be your struggle. I mean, it's certainly not the only thing that, as Keller says, deeply habituates your soul to look at things in completely the opposite ways than God does. It's not the only thing. But it is pervasive. And statistics say, as statistics go, more of you in here struggle with this than don't. And it's not just a man thing. As my friend and pastor Brent Kirkley said, it is an equal opportunity addiction. And so I want to tell you this morning about a study that's going to begin by way of application. So what do we do? What do we do with this? I'll tell you. There's a study that's going to begin on Wednesday night, January the 31st. Now, I'm just talking to the men right now and then ladies I have a, another offering for you or one that's coming but it's a study that's going to begin it's going to be led by Jerry Putman and some others but Jerry so he's a recent graduate from Dallas Seminary he um, before seminary he was in career as a doctor he was a missionary and now he serves full time as a chaplain here's what he says about the study In our Christian communities today, we see men who live frustrated and often defeated lives as they try to engage in the Christian life by trying harder. They try harder to control their anger, to control their judgmental and critical spirit, to control wandering wandering eyes and lustful thoughts. The end result of trying harder is guilt and defeat. But Paul tells us we're to be transformed, not conformed. It is the Holy Spirit who allows us to put on virtues such as self-control, gentleness, peace. He gives new passions to the believer that enables him or her to put off the old things that formerly controlled thoughts and actions. Conquerors, this is the name of the study, is a study that enables a man to look at the issues preventing him from experiencing freedom in the areas of moral purity and to enjoy inner peace. The reality is that every man's facing this issue or is sitting next to someone in church who is. I'll give you two quick testimonies of guys from guys anonymously, but they have been through this study in the last year. One says, I cannot quantify how much I have grown as a father, a husband, a man in the last year meeting with these good men. I now feel that I'm better prepared for the spiritual warfare that goes on daily in my life. I know that Jesus is there. And I have these guys. They're reminding me of that. And I'm not alone. Another one says, that thing, that habit, that fear, that 
at whatever that you feel you're too ashamed to share, it robs your joy. It makes you feel defeated. You're, you've tried. You've failed. You're torn on the inside and you feel alone. In this study, we've, we've walked through with men who have felt the same way. We have learned that, that that's a lie. We discovered our insecurities and we discovered grace. We've prayed for each other through tough times and have encouraged one another. I am still far from finished, but I am not alone, and I'm no longer believing a lie nor entrapped to it. I am learning to live free. Let me ask you this morning. Are you, are you free? How's the chasm between the outward appearance and what is inward in your heart? This study, like I said, this one is particularly for men. It starts January 31st on Wednesday night. If you're interested in it, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and go, what, sign me up. You don't have to do that. You're free to talk to me about it. You talk to Fritz about it or Brent or, or Jerry. But if you want some information, you want to say, I want to sign up, you can email Brent there, brent at Bethelbible.com, or you can email him at info at tapestrytyler.com, which brings me to the other thing. It may be that as you hear this this morning, maybe, maybe it's moral purity. Maybe it's an eating disorder. Maybe, maybe it's a, an, an absence or a vacancy vacancy in your marriage or very difficult bitterness that you can't seem to walk through or the heartache of an estranged relationship. Let me say this this morning. You cannot fix it by merely looking in the mirror and, and keeping up appearances. It has no effect on the affection and the tenderness and the love that is in your heart. If you do that, you will continue to destroy yourself. And so I want to tell you about Tapestry Counseling. We've talked about it before, but it's a counseling center we've just launched. Brent Kirkley our pastor of congregational care leads this counseling center. Thirty plus years as a licensed counselor. I promise you, he's seen it before. Julie David is also a licensed professional counselor for the last ten years. Been with First Baptist Church in Irving, and now she's here at Tapestry Counseling, which is right next door. You may need, you may come to the place and go, you know what, I, I've tried to do this all on my own. I can't, I cannot, I cannot do this on my own. And let me encourage you to talk to somebody about it. Pick up this tapestry counseling brochure. We, here's what it says. We're broken people, all of us, living in a broken world. And that brokenness can cause hurt both to ourselves and to others. But healing is possible. Redemption is a reality. Hope is promised. You don't have to do it all on your own anymore. You know, and the 
God has provided. He has provided. And He will meet you right in the midst of your fear. He isn't, He's not anything to be terrified of. The fear of the Lord is to come humbly before Him and know that He stoops down to where you are and that He is pursuing you for your good with His grace through His Son, Jesus. And by the ever-present power of His Spirit, if you're a believer. So you don't have, to, don't have to do this on your own. So you can pick up a brochure. You can go to the website, tapestrytyler.com. You can actually make an appointment right there on the website, or you can email Brent. He can help get you connected or email info at Tapestry or see him or see Julie. Or if you're interested in the Wednesday night study beginning January 31st, um, I encourage you to do that as 